gonna be much harder to sneak in in here. Right, so try to be on time if you can. Thanks for bearing with us. If Park City's Presbyterian Church is your church home, you've probably heard by now that we had significant water damage over the weekend from a leak in a water line from the chiller in the attic that uh, wrecked <laughs> three levels of our church. And one of those levels that actually bore the brunt of it is the Fellowship Hall where we ordinarily would have this Bible study. So I'm sorry, but we're gonna be kicked out of there for a good while, I think. Uh, so I would foresee us being here in the sanctuary for this study for at least this semester, that's my guess, but we will let you know more and more in the next couple days as we learn from uh, Service Pro and all those folks who know what they're doing, trying to figure out, I even use, I've heard, infrared to figure out where all the moisture is. So, but I think we're definitely in for it. Pray for us, uh, pray for our staff, but they've done a tremendous job, volunteers and staff, over the last few days, have done a tremendous job, and even this morning, uh, getting us in here so we can continue to meet and study God's word together, uh, I'm grateful. So, welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study. Looking a little bit different this morning, but that's okay. If this is your first time with us, welcome. My name is Paul, I'm one of the pastors here. What we do on Tuesday mornings is very simple, but we believe it's profound. We believe that God uses the Bible, this book, to literally change us to show us Jesus. And so we gather together as men on Tuesday mornings before we go to work, believing that as men, as we read the word and as Holy Spirit is working among us, that it will literally change us, that we will see Jesus and be conformed more into his image. We're gonna talk about that actually in detail this morning. We also believe that by design, this study is not just about me or some other pastor or teacher just giving you a bunch of information for you to then take. Um, just from us, we believe that God uses the fellowship of the saints, brotherhood, uh, to press into one another. And so after I am done teaching, we want you to meet in groups. Uh, today, you're welcome to stay in here as a group, but I would imagine a group discussion is hard on a pew, right? And so we have the entire church building at our disposal today, unless it's, you see it's blocked off, right? So for the most part, that's all the classrooms underneath, you can go throughout the great hall. We've opened the parlor, this glass meeting room right over here, the conference room downstairs. You can spread out all over the place. And so when, when I'm done teaching and say amen, find your group and you guys just decide where to go. If there's already a group meeting in the place that you're trying to go to, just find another place or it has been suggested feats of strength could be appropriate. And so if you guys wanna just kind of get into a cage match, I think that would be actually awesome for us to do. Um, if you don't wanna do that, then just move to another place, and then I would suggest from here on out, um, you kind of, we're creatures of habit, right? You can kind of go to the same place each and every week. Uh, last thing I wanna say, and this is my only speech I will say on this, I think, we are breaking, I don't know how many rules, but at least two, uh, by having donuts and coffee in here in the sanctuary. And I told our facility staff that our men will clean up after themselves, right? So this is my dad's speech, okay? If we leave coffee in here, and if you're not using a lid, use a lid, um, then we, we can't have coffee in here anymore or donuts, right? So, so make sure, just clean up after yourself. Let's, our facilities team right now is working so very hard. So just clean up after yourself and we're all good. I did not want to withhold coffee and donuts from you, right? Uh, we need that, I need it. Uh, part of it's just selfish. I couldn't bear sitting up here drinking coffee if we're, I'm not gonna let you to do it, right? 
So um, let's dive in, um, and we're going to go ahead and get started. We're in Colossians chapter 1 today, so grab a Bible, grab your sheet, and we're going to get to work. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you've given us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for who he is as the second person of the Trinity, as we'll read this morning, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation, the one who is preeminent and rules over all things. We pray this morning that nothing less that you, Holy Spirit, would show us Jesus this morning. And by seeing Jesus, we would come to a deeper understanding of who we are in Christ. We ask this in his holy majestic name. Amen. Who am I? Those three words form one of the most fundamental questions of human existence that have been asked for centuries. Who am I? Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Philosophers after him have tried to answer that question. Who am I? Who are we? Maybe you've asked yourself the question from time or time. Who am I? What does it mean to be alive, right? What is my identity? Now, this morning you might think, well, that's a little bit too early for me, Paul. And I try actually to avoid that question. I'd rather just go through life just kind of doing what I do. But I would submit to you that that question, whether or not you're conscientiously asking yourself that question, who am I, or not, you are subliminally living that question out every single day. And we all do it. And you've probably even done it with one another. We define ourselves, we identify ourselves by all kinds of things that we think shape and form our identity. As men, one of the most fundamental ways that we might answer that question, who am I, is by what we do for a living, our vocation. And so you might meet someone, one of the very first questions that you meet when you meet another person, especially another man, maybe even at this Bible study is going to be something like, what do you do? And we tend to offer answers like, I am a doctor. That's who I am. Not just my vocation, but what shapes my identity. Or you say, I am in real estate. That actually shapes who I am. But if, if some of you might say, well, yeah, I get that. That, that. that does really shape who I am. But there's also other fundamental parts of my identity. For some of you, your dads. That shapes who you are. It shapes your role how you think of yourself. Being a dad, for many of you, it means you're also a husband. That also shapes who you are. Those of you who aren't dads and husbands, you're friends. Uh, you are companions. You may have roommates. You are, are uncles. You are sons. All of these things shape your identity, but none of them quite get at the fundamental answer to the question, who am I? And I think if we're going to be honest this morning, we live in a world that is vying for our identity, where the answer to that question is up for debate. The answer to that question, who am I, is contested today in ways it never has been, because the world around us is trying to shape our identity, and it is separating our identity from anything that's external. We live in a world today that says your identity can be determined subjectively. <laughs> that you can define who you are according to how you feel. All of this is warring 
around you and inside of you. And if you stop long enough to think about it, it it's, you stop long enough just to be a little freaked out. <laughs> and so we go through life avoiding the question, who am I? This morning, we're going to try to begin to answer that question. Who am I? Who are we? Fundamentally, as Christians, we believe that we are image bearers. As men, we believe that we are sons of God in Christ Jesus. Who are you? You're a son of God. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in Christ. That is your identity. And this morning, I want to tell you that that is your identity as an image bearer, the fullness of what it means to be human, the fullness of what it means to be a man. If you know him this morning, odds are you've forgotten that because I've forgotten it too. If you don't know him this morning, odds are you've never really heard that before. And you are going through life attempting to answer the question, who am I? And every action that you do, all trying to form an identity that is not who you really are. Who are you? You are a son of God in Christ Jesus. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that we cannot know ourselves unless we know God. The more that we know God, the more that we come to know ourselves, and the more that we come to know ourselves, the more that we come to know him. And so this morning, if we are sons of God in Christ Jesus, I would tell you that you can't answer the question, who am I, unless you first answer the question, who is Jesus? It is only in knowing Jesus that we begin to truly understand who we are in Christ. So this morning, we're going to get at that question really in three ways, maybe four, actually. The last one's kind of a bonus point. And the first is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we're going to do that through Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at what is called the so-called Christ hymn of Colossians. This is, um, many people think, is a hymn. It's poetry. Some people think it's so put together that maybe the Apostle Paul was drawing on something that was commonly sung in the early church and giving it to this Colossian church. We don't know if that's true or not, but what we do see in these opening verses, 15 through 20, is a unit. It's poetic, and it's some of the loftiest language in the entire New Testament about the person and work of Jesus Again, if you're with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the Colossian church was beginning to have the world seep into their understanding of what it means to know Jesus and what it meant to be a Christian. And that world was offering philosophy from the Greeks, but it was also offering a warped religion from a warped view of Judaism. And this kind of pluralistic world in the Colossian church was seeping into their thinking, giving them a low view of Jesus and a diminished view of what it means to be in Christ. We live in a similar world today, do we not? A pluralistic society that is seeping into our thinking as the church. And so we also need to recover a high view of Jesus. And so to answer the question, who is Jesus? 
Paul, in these opening verses, 15 through 20, gives us at least seven attributes of the identity of Jesus. I'm going to go through them quickly. You might want to write these down, okay? We're going to have a lot to do today in the next 20 minutes, okay? So you might want to get out a pen. At least seven attributes of Christ's identity. The first is this. Christ is the image of God. Look with me at verse 15. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Now what you need to understand is that some of the first hearers when they heard this in the Colossian church, especially being around Judaism, although not all of them were Jewish at all, in fact probably most of them were Gentiles, but being around Judaism they would have probably understood the idea of image being equated with sonship. To be an image bearer is to be a son. Now where do we get that idea? Well, fundamentally, we get it from the scripture in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.27, we're told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made in the image of God. Before the fall, we were made as image bearers. You might think about it this way. Any of you who have sons... Do they bear a certain resemblance to you? Do you bear a certain resemblance to your fathers? Have you ever gotten out family pictures and looked as you've gotten older and say, man, I'm starting to really look like my grandfather, right? We bear the image of our fathers in the same way we as human beings, the Bible says, bear the image of God. What an incredible thing to be entrusted with. That we as his created beings have been endowed with the very image of God. Here, Paul is saying Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of God par excellence. He is what it was always intended to be as image bearers. He is the prototypical human. Notice what it says. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now think about that for just a second if you know your Bibles. We typically think of Adam as being the one who was created first, the first one made in the image of God. But here we see that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, from eternity, bore the image of God. That Adam... In some ways, you could say it was actually the second born, patterned and fashioned after Jesus, who is the image of God. So if you want to know what is it supposed to look like for you to be an image bearer, especially as a man, what does that mean? We've been given Jesus, the image of God, the one whom we have been called to pattern our life after as Christians, little Christs. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Fundamentally, this is what it means to be human. This is our identity. And that image in us has been marred by sin. It has been distorted by division around us and inside of us. And now that image is being attached to all other things in this world 
other than God. And now you are tempted, just like me, to bear the image of everything else. But you have been made to be the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, the firstborn of creation. That's the first thing. Second, what we see, who is Jesus? He is the creator of all things. Look with me, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created in him and through him. He is the creator of all things. Again, if you know your Bibles, if you've grown up in church, you've always probably thought of God as creator. And when you think of God as creator, you think of the Father. But what we see is that creation is this distinctly Trinitarian work. The Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was at work in creation. Again, let's go back to Genesis. This is Genesis chapter one, verse one, the very first verses of the Bible. I want you to listen for the work of the Trinity here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Did you hear the Trinity? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's God the Father. When he created the heavens and the earth, the earth was out form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father, God the Spirit, but where is God the Son? And then we're told that as God created the world, he spoke it into existence. And God said, let there be light. Apostle John tells us in John 1 that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God. And through him, all things were made. The word, capital W, Jesus Christ was there at creation. He was God's agent, Paul tells us, through whom and for whom all things were created. Not just some things, but all things, whether thrones or dominions or powers or authorities, Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is creator. Not only is Christ creator, but number three, Christ is the sustainer of all things. Not only did God make all things through Jesus, but now Christ is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. And Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Through Jesus, God did not just make the world and then just kind of let it go. He didn't just wind up the watch and let the watch run. But God is intimately involved in sustaining his creation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The word that we use in theology is the word providence. When you hear the word providence, if you've grown up around church, you probably think of God's sovereignty, his authority, his power, his majesty, and all of that would be true. But if you think about just the word providence, 
That very word is deeply tied to the word provision. That to have a God of providence is to have a God who provides. God uses his providence not just to rule over all things, but to provide for all things, to sustain all things. Here the Apostle Paul says, in Jesus, all things hold together. So if you've ever wondered, well, what does God care about my life? How, much, how, much, how many details of my life does he really care about? Whether I make this decision or that. Whether I take this job or move to this block or do this very thing or whatever it is that I do, however small, however mundane, if you ever wonder, does God care about that? What does this say? In him, all things hold together. Everything, not just the big things, not just the things you don't think you can control, which by the way is everything. <laughs> all things hold together. He's the sustainer of all things. Number four, Christ is the head of the church. Look at verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. There are several ways to think of the word head here. You could think of the word head as foundation. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that he is a cornerstone chosen and precious. He is the foundation of the church. He is whom the church is built upon. As churches, and whether this is your church home or you have another church home, or perhaps that you've left church because you've been around some bad churches. I understand that. Typically where we get offsides as churches is we begin to find foundations and things other than Jesus. And we build churches on personalities or music styles or even good things like certain brands of theology or certain views or applications of scripture. And when any of that, even if it's a very good thing, theology, I would argue, is a very good thing. But unless it truly points us to the person work of Jesus, who is the foundation, then we'll get drawn off sides every time. And when you have a foundation other than Jesus, it cannot hold the weight of the church. And the church begins to crack. He's the head of the church, Paul tells us. He's the head also as a leader. Ephesians 1 verse 22, and he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the supreme leader of the church. It's not a pastor. It's not elders. It's Jesus. He's the head pastor here. He's the one who's in charge. He is the good shepherd. You could also think of he is the head as representative. And what we see here as we begin to move in the next verses is what Paul is doing is he's setting up Jesus as creator for a very important and distinct reason. The reason is this. If Jesus is the creator, if he is head over all things, sustaining all things, ruling over all creation, that means he's also ruling over the new creation. Because we live in a fallen world where just like us, the image of God and us has been broken. We live in a broken world where creation is broken. And now through Jesus, he is redeeming all things and making his creation new again. And if Jesus is the creator of all things, that means he is Lord of the new creation. And we see that in the next verse. Christ, number five, Christ is preeminent. He is the beginning 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does the word preeminent mean? It means to be first, to hold the first rank, to have the highest dignity. That's what it means in Greek. In English, the word that we use preeminent for that Greek word meaning to be first, to hold the first rank, the word preeminent means to be superior in excellence, surpassing or taking precedence. So here's the question for you and me this morning. Is Jesus preeminent in your life? Does he hold the highest rank, the greatest dignity? Is he your greatest authority? Is he first in your life above all things? Think of all the ways that we identify ourselves, our work. Those of you who are husbands or dads, where you live, what you've accomplished, all of these things we tend to identify that none of them is the most important thing in your life. Not your kids, not your spouse. No, in all things, he, Jesus, is preeminent. And I would submit to you is that the person who holds that place in your life, whoever is on that throne, and for some of you, it's you. <laughs> whoever holds that place, that's how you're going to identify yourself. Paul says, for in him, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Number six, Jesus is fully God. Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not half and half, not 50-50, but 100-100. 100% God, 100% man. I think of the opening lines of the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews 1 verse 3. The preacher says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. The exact imprint of his nature. He is the fullness of God. Paul says, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Number seven, all of this leads to this thing. Verse 20, Jesus is our reconciler. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is the Messiah. Verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of this creator, sustainer, ruler, authority, preeminent, all of these things are now funneled into one thing, that he is the reconciler, that God has given to Jesus the job to reconcile all things to himself. That word reconciliation is a relational term. And it assumes that we need to be reconciled. That our world needs to be reconciled. And if that is true, and it is, it's true because we are at war with God apart from him. If we have to be reconciled, then that means that there's no peace between us. The Bible says that we are at enmity with God. We're at war with him, and so we need to be reconciled. He's given Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. How? By making peace 
by the blood of his cross. That is who Jesus is. So what does that have to do with us? How does that shape our identity? Well, very quickly, I wanna now ask two further questions. If that's who Jesus is, the second question I wanna ask then, who were we? Who were we? I want you to look with me. Colossians 1 verse 21. After telling us who Jesus is, the apostle Paul then moves on and says, and you, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Who is Jesus? He's creator, he's sustainer. He is ruler, he is preeminent, he is the reconciler. Who were you? You were an alien. That word being alienated means that you were cut off. You were separated from him, why? Because of sin. Because you no longer, just like me, bear the image of God apart from Jesus. You don't bear his resemblance anymore. Like a son who's gone wayward and left his family and changed his very image, that's what we are. We no longer bear the image of God in our sin. And that cuts us off from him. It makes us at war with him. It makes us enemies of him. Ephesians 2 verse 12, Paul puts it this way. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Notice what Paul says. You're an alien. You are a stranger to the promises of God. You are separated from Christ. And if that describes you, then Paul says you have no hope. We were aliens, alienated, alienated from God. We're also hostile in mind, Paul says. The word hostility is that word enmity. It means that we are, we are at war with God in our sin. It's not just that we do immoral things or misbehaving, but apart from Christ, Paul says, you, you are an enemy of God, hostile in mind. James puts it this way, James chapter four, verse four. He says, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Apart from Christ, that's who you were. You were alienated and you were hostile in mind. That hostility of mind, I think, finds pre, three primary applications in our world today. Atheism, agnosticism, and apathy. Now, atheism is pretty clear to most of us. That's believing that there is no God. And perhaps you know some atheists. Some of you this morning may be atheists. Maybe you're just curious and you're checking it out. But funnily, it means to believe that there is no God. Now, what we see in our world today is less atheism and more agnosticism. And agnosticism says, well, I'm just not sure. Maybe that describes you. Maybe it describes people that you know, neighbors, friends, maybe even your own children. I, I, I'm not sure. Who, who could know for sure, right? That's what an agnostic would say. But I think what we tend to see even more in the church is not atheism or agnosticism, it's apathy. And as those who grow up in the church, we, we tend to be almost inoculated towards the things of God. We're so used to it that we don't, 
we take it for granted. We don't see just how precious it truly is. We don't no longer see Jesus as preeminent. And that makes us apathetic. And I want you to know that's a form of hostility. That's hostility of mind. Right? Because in our apathy, we tend to befriend the world. And when we befriend the world, what does James say? We become enemies of God. Right? So here's Paul. He's saying, this is who you were. You were aliens. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Right? Doing evil deeds. Titus 1. He says, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now I want you to notice something about what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. Notice the tense. And you, you were. It's in the past tense. In Christ, this is no longer your identity. It's no longer who you are anymore, Paul says. This is who you were. If you are apart from Christ, this is your identity now. But if you are in Christ, this is who we were. So who are we? And that's where we're going to end this morning. Who are we? Fundamentally, who are we? This is who we are, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who are we? You are reconciled in Christ. That through Jesus, God reconciled the world to himself by making peace by the blood of his cross. You are at the center of that mission. If you are in Christ, you have been reconciled to God. That means you're no longer an enemy. You're his friend. Not only are you his friend, but now you who are once orphans have been made sons. You are sons of God and the image of God has now been restored in you. That's the second thing. He says that you are holy. In Christ, you are holy. That word holy means to be set apart. There is only one who is holy and that is God. But as his image bearers, we have been called and created to be like him and holy like him. That's why in Leviticus it says, be holy as he is holy. You are called now to be set apart because you've been reconciled. You are now sons of God and now you are holy. Not only are you holy, but in verse 22 it says you are blameless. That means that no one can find fault in you anymore. Think of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned in Christ. That's who you are. You are blameless. And lastly, he says you are above reproach. What does that mean? It's the very first qualification for elders and overseers of the church. 1 Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Reproach is a bar. That's how people think of you, how people see you. To be above reproach means you're so blameless that no one could even think ill of you. Nobody even could even dare to bring an accusation against you because you are so far above reproach. The truth is that describes no one in this room apart from Jesus Christ. In Christ, you've been reconciled. 
In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are blameless. In Christ, you are above reproach. In Christ, you've been called to be sons of God, his image bearers. That is who you are. And so who are we called to be? It's the last thing we're gonna end so you can go to your tables. I want you to look at verse 23. This is now our battle and our daily challenge until we are taken home or until Christ comes again. We live in a world that's warring for our identity and calling us to question all of the things I just said that have been declared to you in Christ. All of that is being called into question. You are tempted to go back to who you were. Paul says it's not who you are anymore. We live in a world that wants you to go and live back in who you are. Why? Because we forget. We forget who we are. G.K. Chesterton, I love Chesterton. It's in a book called Orthodoxy. He put it this way. I want you to listen. This is great. He says, every man has forgotten who he is. One may understand the cosmos, but never the ego. The self is more distant than any star. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, but thou shalt not know thyself. We are all under the same mental calamity. We have forgotten our names. We've forgotten what it means to be sons of God. This is what he says. He sums it up by saying, we have all forgotten what we really are. So what must we do? The last thing, look with me, verse 23. In our faithless, divided, chaotic world, that's increasingly infiltrating our minds and hearts as Christians. We must never forget who we are in Christ. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We must be stable and steadfast and never shifting from the gospel of Jesus that reminds us every single day of who we really are. Who are we? We are holy, we are blameless, we are above reproach because we have been reconciled to God to be his sons in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for you and send you to, not your tables, (laughs) to some room somewhere scattered across this great campus. Let me pray. Father, be with these men now. As they meet in their groups, I pray that you'll bless them, draw near to them, and use their word um, towards one another and your word to us to be a reminder of who we are in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.